Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 196, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. A new survey says teachers are more likely to experience depression symptoms than other adults, and Michigan schools revolt over a new law and say they won't flunk struggling third grade readers. Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our guest tells us why grading class participation is a bad idea, but he also offers us some tips on how not to stifle that participation. Stay with us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, Director of Curriculum and Instruction, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I am fantastic. (laughs) And you probably think I say that every week, um, but every week that we move forward to close out this pandemic school year, I just continue to smile and be grateful because we made it. We've got great plans for next year, and I'm just really, you know, I'll be honest, relieved. That's funny you say that because um, there's no doubt teachers deserve so much credit uh, for what yes. they pulled off this past year. And then I want to say I saw a headline and I didn't click it. I'm going to type it in as I'm talking to you. But did you see something about New York is setting up some type of parade for teachers? Did, did you see this? Um, they definitely have some celebration plans in place. And believe it or not, I think many of us are doing it. We may not just, you know, we're, we're probably just not getting the press. I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, lots of school districts have offered summer school. Um, we used to be worried about the summer slides. But right now, the big thing is that we're worried about learning loss. And so we've all, you know, we're offering this summer enrichment programs and we are celebrating teachers and students big time. I mean, we we just had a luncheon for our teachers the other day. We had a popsicle delivery for our students. We have a number of other things prepared for them um, over the last couple of weeks of summer school. And I just think it's critical um, for their mental health and for them to understand you volunteered to work summer school. Yes, they get compensated, but you still got to volunteer um, and they're doing a wonderful job. And so I'm glad to hear Um, that New York is doing something as big as a parade. And I don't know if this is the specific article headline I saw, but I did find that in Brooklyn, apparently they, they held a special parade route um, to thank, you know, teachers uh, for working through all of this uh, COVID-19 outbreak. And I mean, really, if you think about it, like we've been at war. Um, I I don't want to say we've won, but we're, we're, things are looking up and um, who, who else to celebrate, you know, other than, you know, the frontline workers, of course, and teachers, teachers are very symbolic of, of the battle we fought. So I I like the idea, the sentiment of, you know, if you want to applaud somebody, of course, healthcare workers as well. um, And and even the people in the grocery stores and kind of kept things open during our toughest times, but certainly Mm -hmm. teachers do deserve some credit. I like the idea of people being celebrated as we're kind of wrapping this up or, or things are starting to look better. And we could never celebrate them enough, to be honest. 
No doubt. And it actually leads us to uh, the first story in our teacher's lounge today, which is uh, related to a study that came out um, from the RAND Corp um, related to just kind of taking a pulse of the mental health of educators around the country. And they did two surveys. And the first one was done in January and early February. And they surveyed a nationally representative sample of U.S. adults. And then in early March, they researched a actual like um, group of teachers uh, with the same type of questions. And the results found that apparently teachers are currently more likely to experience depression symptoms than the group of other adults. Uh, does, hmm. does that surprise you? I would say no. Um, their teachers are the ones in the trenches all day, every day um, with our children. And so to me, I think that's pretty, pretty uh, on point. What they said was uh, now that 78% of teachers um, experience frequent job-related stress, uh, they found that one in five were not coping well with that stress. Uh, half of the teachers reported feeling burned out, and 27% said they experienced symptoms of depression. So, yeah, go ahead. Listen, teaching is hard. It requires so much of you physically and emotionally, and people don't get that. And when you couple that with feeling unappreciated, um, inappropriately compensated, and then you put a pandemic year on top of it where you flew the plane while learning how to fly it all at the same time. And then let's remember that, you know, we're moms, we're husbands, mm -hmm. we're fathers, we're, we're, we're wives, you know, we, we're graduate students. Some of us have um, multiple jobs to make ends meet. And you put all of those things together and you watch the news regularly and you hear the negativity, um, you know, and just all that's associated with the job of teaching. Yes, it can wear you out. And I will never sugarcoat that. This was the hardest year of my career. And I've had some hills and valleys, let me tell you. Mm -hmm. um, but this was the hardest year of my career. And there were days that I'm not going to say I wanted to give up because I'm not a quitter, but there were days where I just didn't want to get out of my bed. I did not. I just felt depleted and on zero. And I would have to push through and get to that schoolhouse because at the end of the day, the single most reason why we return every day are the children we serve. I get it. And I mean, it's it was such a tough year and and the survey actually breaks down what was stressing teachers out the most it says that i'd love to hear what's listed it says teaching in person and remotely at the same time was the number one thing so just that like you said i think the the new challenges yeah. in the job that, and that was such an awful situation for many teachers i will again um say a positive about our school district that is not how we handled it. This district where our children attended, that's not how they handled it either. Um, I think certain teachers were selected to provide that virtual learning, whether it was all day or select class periods. And then there were other times where they taught children face-to-face -face that did not opt out for um, virtual learning. And even that was still stressful because it was a completely different type of environment to try to engage children and figure out if kids were mastering the content that you were teaching, if you were able to make connections and build relationships, because that's like the number one thing that you have to do in order for a child to feel comfortable to even receive the information you're trying to teach them. And doing that virtually um, for any age, K-12 was difficult. And so I really feel um, 
bad for those teachers who are required to do both. Very much in the same vein, number two and three were teaching remotely or changes in my school's instructional model uh, Mm -hmm. this past year. Um, And then you start to kind of go into a different direction, the health of a loved one who is at high risk for contracting COVID. Um, And then my health, right? Like, which is interesting. It's it's five down the line for these folks. But I mean, still, like that is very much a concern. They had to go back into the classroom in many cases. Uh, And then we taught all year long here in the South. And every day that you were around hundreds of children, I mean, let's just be honest, every single day from the moment you put your foot on that pavement, you were worried about whether you were going to get sick or bring home the virus to your loved ones, whether it was your spouse or your children. And many people take care of their elderly parents. And so, you know, you don't want to live and operate in fear, but it was a real thing to worry about. Even wearing a mask and following COVID protocols in the building, um, that was still, think about it, that was that was hazardous um, for educators. And that was something tough to deal with every day. And Another thing that may not be listed that we really need to take into account is when our country shut down in many different ways, um, depending on what state you lived in, that in itself was heavy to deal with. Cutting off your social interaction, places you were used to attending, Mm -hmm. people you were used to seeing, hugs, high fives, fist bumps, the little things, Mm -hmm. the little things were taken away from us. And when you're a teacher, let me tell you, the little ones thrive on love and affection. Think about the children who may not get it at home. And even those that do, they've learned how important affection is. And I'm going to tell you, kids love their teachers. And when you put up shields and clear glass walls and you can't touch and you have to stand six feet apart, that changes what the playground time is like. It's that in itself to me was just knock down, drag out, difficult. No doubt. And and I don't know, I don't know if I ever directly asked you this, probably because it was an uncomfortable question, but some of the teachers that I, I talked to when they were headed back into the school for the first time, um, they kind of had told me that they did basically accepted the fact that I'm gonna eventually get COVID. Like that was yeah. just something that they had to mm-hmm. accept as they went back. Now, yes. fortunately, yes. most of the ones that I know didn't get it, um, but many people did. And I don't know if you had kind of just come to grips with that. Like, yep, I'm going back and it's probably going to get yep. me at some point. Absolutely, I did. And, you know, I did the best that I could. My biggest worry um, was for my husband, who is considered high risk. And, you know, this is probably TMI, but I will be honest and say that at the height of You know, the pandemic, when we were just figuring out just how dangerous the virus uh, could be, our social interaction in our home changed. I was terrified to hug on and love on my husband um, Mm -hmm. after returning from school. We put some protocols in place in our own home, new procedures that um, we all followed the moment we opened our garage. And it just changed things. And then even with my son, my teenage son, um, you know, whose social life was shut off right when it be, you know, kind of kicked off for him. And it was hard watching him. I think there was some times when he was very lonely and he really missed his friends and it just broke my heart. And then when we kind of let him, you know, go a little bit here and there, especially when he had to get back to um, football practices, each time he would come home and he's so used to coming directly in and hug and kiss mom, how was your day? I won't lie and say that I wasn't afraid sometimes Mm -hmm. when my baby would come to hug me. And I think what we did, we would hug and I kissed his face a little less. 
And that might sound really horrible, but you know, I was worried. No, I, I and think, I didn't want to get him sick. I think any parent um, of a teenager or a twenty-year-old knows exactly what you're talking about. Uh, I don't think any of them they might not be honest about it. But I've got a twenty-five-year-old and a seventeen-year-old, and one year ago I was worried about you know hugging on them and loving on them, seeing as how I was working in a school building. Right, and I mean, and you want to give kids that age that space. But that space yeah. means more risk. And so it was kind of like this balance I think parents were having yeah. with their kids. Well, And then being a boy mom now, you know. <laughs> well, to, to wrap up this particular story, do you think this feeling of depression and darkness, is it all strictly COVID related? Do you think next year is going to be a brighter year? Or you kind of indicated a little bit, is it possible that teachers are just in a rough spot in general right now. And they would have felt very much similar even without a pandemic. I think you've answered all three of those questions. Number one, the job has always been hard and nobody really listened to us. And so we didn't really verbalize it. Right. We just pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and, you know, did what we had to do. I think that the pandemic weighed down on us a, a whole lot more. And because, because we're paying attention to how everyone is handling the pandemic, you're hearing teachers um, and really listening for the first time. I do feel very optimistic about next year. I do feel that it's going to be a better year, a brighter year. I am um, at, at a pause and wondering what uh, the COVID numbers will be like if people aren't getting their teenagers uh, age 12 to 24 vaccinated, what that will look like in regard to um, outbreaks in schools. But mm -hmm. hopefully lots of teachers have gotten their vaccinations and um, return to school plans are being put in place um, in the best and safe way, you know, safest way as possible. But I'm really looking forward to next year. Um, and, you know, it's only been three weeks that I've realized that I'm not going to be a school principal. But before I knew about my promotion, I really had shifted my, my focus completely to a year two where teachers could feel a little bit at ease, where they could breathe and get back to enjoying. I mean, being passionate about what we do and creating an environment where children truly enjoyed school and felt like they had some type of, you know, social interactions, getting back to pep rallies, getting back to assemblies. They might be a little different different, but it's better than them being canceled completely. And so, yes, I am fired up about next school year. Good. Let me, quick question. Are you seeing, I know you're a small sample, but are you seeing a lack of new teachers applying for jobs in your district? Did you, do you think that um, teachers, they've been turned I, off? I would, I would say, yes, that's probably a statewide issue. As we've watched over the last five years, our numbers dwindle in the college of ed programs. And of course, um, in the state of Mississippi, there, you know, there's been a recent article out about uh, millennials and young people are leaving our state for better opportunities and better wages. So, yes, it is a challenge. I um, am very blessed to be a coach's wife. I've picked up a lot of recruitment um, skills. <laughs> I'm being very honest with you. That's and, good for you. You know, I, I haven't had a teacher vacancy in a couple of months. My slots, the few slots that I had, they were filled. I feel very good about the young people that we've um, hired and I'm excited for them. There are a number of vacancies still left in our district and in and, and, and a lot of the surrounding districts, um, but I'm hopeful that they'll be able to get them um, filled as the, the game has changed. You know, before we were in control of picking the absolute best candidate for our positions. And now teachers are in control. They are picking the principal and the building that's, you know, best for them. You might have just hit on something that I think we may even need to do a future show on because you, you may not want to give yeah. away your secrets, but you are uniquely qualified on how to recruit 
And yeah. I, I, I would be interested to hear some tricks of the trade in terms of how do you get teachers to your district, your school, um, that might be more effective than maybe other teachers in, in districts. And I would love to share it with you. Um, I will tell you that I've been incredibly blessed that there has not been a school year um, that I've served as principal where I opened up the school year with a vacancy in a classroom. Not one. Good for you. Uh, next story is um, up in Michigan. And we have a weird parallel to this story because um, Michigan back, I think it was starting in 2018-19 year and then again in 2019-20 year, they were rolling out a new law which required um, schools to fail, essentially, students in the third grade who weren't able to read and pass certain tests. Um, now, I will point this out. It was a recommended retention of the third graders, and there were lots of ways around it should you, like a school, want to push back and say, no, this student needs to go on. But as of Monday in Michigan, 3,477 students, about 3.4% of the third graders in the state, had been sent a retention recommendation letter. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so after a pandemic year, after a pandemic year. Now, um, I think we've got the numbers in here of how much more that is. It says that's alarming already, seeing as how so many other accountability measures were waived for school districts across the country because children and families, you know, had right. a lot of different struggles during a pandemic. That is heartbreaking. It says if all those students were actually held back, it would represent a five-fold increase over the number of students who flunked third grade in mm. 2018, 19, and 2019, and 20. Anyhow, many districts are saying they're going to work around this law. Like they're going to use any exemption possible, whatever they can do to make sure that these students do move on. And I guess I kind of already know where you are just by hearing your initial reaction. But we, for those that don't know, in Mississippi have a similar law. Um, yes. Our the Literacy-Based Promotion Act, um, which really was established, I want to say, as far back as 2013. And what I'm not hearing you say is that, um, you know, for us, it was a rollout process. Mm -hmm. So we rolled out the Literacy-Based Promotion Act. It was heavily advertised. Districts were trained and understood the requirements. And the first couple of years, a lower score was what we looked at as we moved to raise children up to a, from a level two to a level three, which is considered pass, not necessarily proficient, but at a pass rate in order to say that they could be promoted. What I'm hearing you say is that Michigan has implemented it. This is where it stands. And they have already identified those children who, be, who will be retained. And that's devastating. And so here's the question, I guess. Let's take the pandemic out of it. Do you first like the idea of these laws? Do you think it's been effective here in Mississippi? So let's assume this is just a normal year and, and everyone has an opportunity to learn equally and there's no computers in front of kids. Like, sh should Michigan continue to push forward with this law beyond the pandemic year and they should just take a break this year? I think that I'm missing some critical pieces of information to make a judgment on how and what they should do um, in reference to how we handled it in Mississippi. It was definitely scary when it first rolled out. But as I shared, there are five performance levels that a child can um, score on the state assessment. And when our act first rolled out, children needed to score just to performance level two. And, you know, 
for higher performing districts, that was not hard. It was the high poverty, low performing um, districts that struggled with that number. But you were it was it gave you time to put measures in place to intervene, to get children in the MTSS process. And then by the time and I want to say it was 2016, I could be wrong. It could be 2017 where the performance level was finally raised to a three Um And any child that didn't score performance level three would then be retained. But also with that, we didn't issue a retention letter until after they had two additional attempts um, to score appropriately on the assessment with interventions being provided. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't pass the second assessment, which is given before school is out, then they were offered three to four weeks of interventions in summer school. And then they took the test again before the end of June. And oftentimes children were successful in the event that they weren't successful. If we had ample amount of data and documentation to support, um, how we supported the child, then the local superintendent had the authority to determine whether a child could be promoted or not. So I'm missing a lot of details on this Michigan um, on this Michigan law, but it just seems like to me with states asking for waivers for state assessments across the board, why would you implement it right now? Why didn't they wait an additional year? What is Mississippi doing this year with the pandemic in terms of our Law. All assessment required requirements have been waived. All. So is that included? Yeah. Okay. So uh, there there will be no... We're still teaching hard. We're still trying to meet accountability requirements because we want our children to, you know, grow and perform optimally. But the accountability requirements have been waived for the 2021 year. So we're really eager to get our data back right, from the see. assessments we gave this spring so that we can quickly make some modifications and adjustments to our instruction and to our intervention um, programs and prepare children for the next accountability round, which will be spring 2022. All right. Well, Christina, we're going to end it there. Uh, are you ready for today's bright idea? I am. Should you or should you not grade class participation? This is a topic our guest in today's Bright Idea segment has spent a lot of time thinking about. Jim Lang is a professor of English at Assumption University, and he's also the author of six education-related books, the most recent of which is Distracted, Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It. He's also a regular contributor to the Chronicle of Higher Education. Jim, welcome to Class Dismissed. You bet. Thanks for having me. Put a number on it. How many teachers do you think grade class participation, if you had to guess? In higher education, it's probably 50 to 75%. In higher education? What do you think about it? Do you think it happens in K through 12 much at all? Um, I think it probably happens more in secondary education rather than K through 8 education. So I, I would say in secondary education, it's probably pretty common as well there too. Okay. So you've kind of come out in this recent article that was published in the Chronicle of Higher Education, basically making a plea to stop grading class participation. But but your road to getting there, I guess, has kind of been long and windy because you, for a long time, graded class participation. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. I kind of did what was done to me as a student, which was to um, put, you know, about 10% of my grade toward class participation. And then um, at the end of the semester, just kind of like, you know, as I was sort of touting up the grades for the semester and adding up numbers and percentages and then kind of looking at the student and saying, all right, how much did this student speak over the course of the semester? And then, you know, using that grade um, essentially to oftentimes sort of nudge the student's grade up or the final grade up or down, right? So like if, if a student had an 80, 
8% or 89%, and they've been very active participation participants, then I might nudge it up to 90 and give them the A-, right, instead of the B-plus or something like that. So I use it in this very informal, subjective way. Um, but that was the way that I had seen other teachers using it. So that's kind of just what I did. I adopted what I had experienced uh, as a student. And, and you always were kind of using it in a, in a positive way. It was never meant to, like, bring a grade down. Exactly. There was a kind of – it was – it was possible for students to always help to get help from the the participation grade, but I wouldn't like punish students for not speaking that much in class. So that their grade would just stay what it was rather than getting that nudge up from the participation grade. What made you start to think, all right, I need to reevaluate what I'm doing here. It just, it didn't feel right. It just, I, I just became more and more uneasy with it because as you think about, you know, grades are really supposed to, measure um, something that, that, that we can document, like the learning of the students. So how much have they learned? How much have they um, been able to achieve in terms of the goals that we have set for the course? And I just started to get less and less comfortable with the idea that grades can just be sort of nudged around in this informal way. But I was equally uncomfortable with the idea that um, that students were essentially getting rewarded for just talking. And that if you sort of just raised your hand and spoke a lot in class that you were going to get a reward for that. Whereas, you know, there were other students who might be um, engaged just as thoughtfully in the class through the way they took their notes, through the way they participated in group work, through the way they maybe um, engaged with the course material outside of the classroom. And those students were not getting that benefit. Um, I, I was a student who didn't love to speak in class. So, you know, I, I just felt increasingly uncomfortable with just rewarding students for raising their hands, basically. And when you say increasingly uncomfortable, I mean, did you find yourself like looking at the grading book and I'm going to make up names and you say you were doing, well, Mike, he he's extroverted and he speaks a lot and, you know, he participates a lot. So I got to give him the bump up from the B to a B plus. But Susie is a very bright student. I know she is, but she doesn't speak a lot. So she doesn't get the bump. Is that kind of like what you, you were doing? Kind of, yes. And like, you know, I would try to work every angle I could to try and give Susie that bump, even though maybe she hadn't spoken as much. Um, but I, yeah, that's kind of what it was. There was this sort of increasing sense that like this, this is not working right. Like it's not, it's not doing what I want it to do. Um, and it doesn't quite seem fair to me either. So um, I just sort of gradually began uh, moving away from that practice. Well, what I like about your article, though, is you're not just a, a problem spotter. You didn't like just point to a problem you actually offer us solutions because you aren't saying like let's throw the baby out with the bathwater let's not grade class participation because you still the ultimate goal is right to get kids to participate right right so rather than make participation something that um, is optional and that can be graded um, what i argue instead is that participation should be the norm that should be the expectation that we have for every student that you are in this class and as a result part of the work of doing this class is participating now, in order to make that happen, you have to think about participation in a more broad, expansive kind of way. So it doesn't mean just raising your hands and lobbing out a comment to the whole group. Participation can take the form of doing in-class writing exercises, um, actively working with your peers when we're doing group activities. Um, it can take the form of raising your hand and speaking to the class. But even now that so many of us now have access to the technological tools um, that we might not have been using before the pandemic, it could also take the form of posting to the group uh, discussion board after class, right? So that there's just lots and lots of ways for students to participate. But the expectation is everybody does these things. Um, and so, you know, that's what I say to students at the beginning of the semester now. I'm not going to grade participation because you're all going to participate. 
every day and every week in the class. Now, you're going to do that in different ways. Um, and so, you know, if you love to speak in class and raise your hand, that's fine. You can do that. But there are other ways for you to participate. The other thing I do argue in terms of speaking in terms of the whole class, speaking in front of the whole class, I know some students are uncomfortable with that. And I know some instructors are uncomfortable with the idea that we should, you know, just call on students who don't have their hands raised. But here, too, I think that, um, you know, it's important for us to communicate that, um, you know, participation is a value. It's so important that we have to sometimes invite students in who maybe at that moment don't, you know, are, are not raising their hand or are not actively signaling that they want to participate. So I call this invitational participation, by which I mean, I'm not like, you know, challenging you to a duel when I say, do you want to add some, you know, do you, like when I call on a student. Instead, I'm saying, look, there's, you know, we're, we're talking about something interesting here. And I'd like to know, do you have anything you want to say? Like, uh, you've been quiet for a while, but I know you're a great student um, and you've thought about this. So would you like to add anything at this point? A student can always say no to that. But I want to make sure that every student gets invited to participate on a regular basis. Um, and when I do that, well, then, again, there's no reason for me to reward participation because I'm like getting everybody to participate. So. Um, so we think about invitational participation as one of the key strategies. Um, and then we think about the other one as being expanding the idea of participation. You can participate in lots of different ways. Let's dive into that invitational um, participation just a minute there. So I want, if I heard you right, when you, you say call on the quiet student who you feel like may have something to contribute, you basically say that to to the student in front of everyone like you i can tell that you're thinking do you want to contribute but you also offer them an out exactly i do recognize that sometimes students may really be thinking and there are also of course students who may you know have trouble participating because they have anxiety or they have um you know they're very introverted so yes a student can always say pass essentially like you know no i'm, I'm not interested i don't have anything to say right now and what I have found over the years of doing this is that oftentimes it takes a, it takes it might take several invitations for the student to make that first comment. But when once they get it the first time and they pass and they know that's okay, that lowers the um, kind of level of I think stress and fear about participating in the classroom because they know you know what I I can say no and that's fine. But eventually, uh, my experience has been that student always eventually will say yes at some point. And participate and then once they do that then the fear is really gone and they can know okay it's fine i can speak up in here and um it's no big deal and so then i if i have good ideas i can uh contribute them to the class since you've been paying attention to this and, and been doing this in somewhat of a at least calculated manner can, can you share an example of where you were able to kind of get that quiet student uh, without sharing a name to kind of come out of their shell um, so in higher education, you know, we get our we get these accommodation letters, which are, um, you know, described for us that students might have certain accommodations, like taking extra time or whatever, um, on a taking time and a half on a test. And so in recent years, I've actually had accommodation letters for students who have um, the accommodation essentially has been um, don't call on the student, right? Like the student doesn't want to be able to doesn't want to have to be forced to contribute in class. And probably they don't tell us why, but it's probably because of anxiety. So typically with those students, I will meet with them outside of class and say, look, here's the way it works. I do offer these invitations. Do you want me to offer you the invitations or not? Uh, and I had a student a couple of years ago who said, sure, it's fine. Um, and the first couple of times, uh, you know, he just said no. 
or I would actually offer him a yes, no question, basically, or like, you know, um, do you agree with this or not kind of thing? And he would respond to those. And then eventually, at the, by the end of the semester, when I would you know, offer him an invitation, he would speak and contribute just like um, every other student. So, uh, you know, and then I had that, that student is actually was also one of my advisees. And I saw over the course of his time at the, the institution how much he really grew into himself as a student. And so I think those kinds of strategies can really benefit every student. We have to be compassionate. We have to, of course, respect people's accommodations. Um, but I think that inviting those students, giving them the opportunity to speak, rather than just sort of saying, oh, okay, I'm, I'll, you know, I'll leave you alone. Um, I think actually that's one of the most inclusive things we can do as educators, is to make sure that every student is getting the opportunity and the invitation to participate. I know you and I, we've got participation under a microscope right now, so it seems like we're giving it a lot of attention. But how much attention do you give it, say, that first day or that first week of class when you're passing out the syllabus? And, and are you making a big deal about how participation is an important part of your class? Are you overt about it? I do because it's, there's, a, there's a section on my syllabus that reads, you know, that explains why participation isn't graded because I know many students have experienced that in their other classes. So I, I, there's a paragraph about it in my syllabus. I review that paragraph. But the more important way that I deal with it on the first day of the semester is everybody participates on the first day of the semester. <laughs> so like if, if that's a value, it's got every, you know, all the sort of essential values of the course should be, um, you know, instituted in the first day, the first week of the semester. So we always will do, I always do an event or some kind of activity on the first day of the semester in which students have to, um, you know, talk to one another, and then typically talk to the, say something to the whole room as well. And then I just say, look, this is the way the class works. So like, you're going to be in here, you're going to be speaking um, to one another and to, and to all of us. Um, and I want you to just understand that so that um, you recognize that this is what you've essentially signed up for. Now, here in higher education, of course, um, you know, students can choose to take or not take classes. Um, so that one of the ways I've presented is, look, if you've signed up for this class, you've essentially signed up to participate. Um, I know that that can be different for K-12 teachers, but in my case, um, that's something that's communicated to them to, on the first day. Why is this important to you? Can a student not learn by just being a fly on the wall? Yes, but I, I mean, yes, but we know that the more ways students engage with the material, the more deeply they learn it, right? So a student who just listens and reads is going to have one kind of experience, but we know that a student who listens, reads, and then writes about it is going to have an even more deeper engagement and better learning, and a student who listens, reads, writes, and speaks is going to have an even more engagement. And, you know, if they drew something about it, it would get even deeper, right? So the more ways they engage with the material, the more deeply they're going to learn. But the other thing that I think is really important here is the uh, thing I mentioned earlier about inclusivity. Um, you know, that when we when we just kind of make participation like something that people can choose, or we kind of leave it up to the students to decide whether or not they're going to participate, you're going to have students who dominate the conversation. You're going to have confident students who's, you know, coming from from good, you know, like backgrounds who who have been taught, you know, that you're 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 capable of success here. Um, speak up. We want to hear you, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're going to have other students who are coming from backgrounds um, who maybe have where education has not been valued, where um, they haven't had the same exper positive experiences in their lives, um, and they may choose to kind of. Uh, react in the classroom to just kind of staying in their shells and uh, and not really uh, wanting to get out because of uh, for whatever reason. 
So one of the best things I can do as an educator is, is draw those students in and help them recognize, no, you have something important to contribute here. Every student in this room has a unique experience, a unique perspective that nobody else has. And that you could say the one thing that helps us all understand this topic more clearly. So the best thing I can do as an educator in terms of inclusivity is to make sure that every student's voice gets heard in the room and that each of those students, when their voice gets heard, recognizes, I have something unique to offer here. That doesn't happen if I just say, you know, okay, so, you know, who, who raise your hand, who's got something to say, right? I want to make sure every student um, knows they matter in the classroom. Do you have any strategies for the kids that are over-participating? Do you try to discourage that at all, or do you just let it flow? I actually love one strategy that a colleague of mine came up with, um, which is she, as students, uh, when she poses a question, and she makes this clear from the beginning of the semester, she does not call on anyone until, I can't remember what the number is, five or ten students have raised their hand. So, in other words, you know, she'll sit there for 30 seconds or a minute until five hands are up. Now, when you do that, of course, um, you're going to get the two or three students who always raise their hands and want to talk, but then eventually you're going to get some other students. And so then you can start to pick and choose uh, which students you want to be able to make sure that you're drawing into the conversation. And of course, if you do invitational participation, I mean, that's the same thing. I, it's very easy for me to say, all right, you know, John, I've already heard from you a few times today. Kira, I haven't heard from you yet. Do you want to add something? So, so I think, you know, as a teacher, you kind of learn to manage those things. Uh, kind of intuitively, but but those to me are two two strategies for addressing that problem. Yeah, I like it, Jim Lang. We appreciate you putting a microscope on uh, participation. It's something I think that we we might forget about sometimes uh, in the education field. Uh, again, uh, Jim's latest book is "Distracted: Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It." Jim, uh, I definitely want to have you back on the show so we can dive into that book. That is a topic that I feel like we need to discuss. Yeah, it became especially relevant during the pandemic when we were all doing all of our learning through screens and everything. So absolutely, I'll be happy to come back and join you for that. Excellent. Um, if somebody wants to keep up with you, what's a good way to do that? Twitter, Instagram? Yep, Twitter, uh, Lang on Course is my Twitter account. And then uh, I've got a website, jamesmlang.com. I know you've got a pretty big uh, Twitter following there as well. So uh, are you ready for our pop quiz? Yes. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? English literature, obviously. <laughs> what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> um, probably physical, at least in the upper levels, physical, more physical education. We know that uh, physical education is one of the best things you can do for your brain. What does every child deserve? Hmm. Uh, opportunity to succeed. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Uh, the biggest challenge, I guess, that would be sort of learning to manage the sort of distractions and digital devices and, and use them for learning rather than um, having them interfere with their learning. What's the best gift to give an educator? Uh, books. <laughs> Which teacher changed your life? Uh, a teacher named Dr. Robert Vaca at the University of Notre Dame. He uh, was a classics teacher, and I took several Latin and Greek classes with him. And so, so what do you do? Because that, that's interesting. That's a interesting subject to to be life changing. <laughs> yeah, he um, he taught me to just really respect. Uh, he he actually what he really did was he he respected uh, like the students' opinions. That you you could tell when he asked a question, he really wanted to know what you thought. And that kind of showed me, 
again, like as I was kind of saying earlier about student, that showed me that like I maybe had something to offer um, because he, he, he just was so good about, he would ask a question and, and then he would kind of just stare off thoughtfully in his face and you could tell he was really listening. He wanted to know what you had to say. And last question, pen or pencil? <laughs> Black felt tip pen. Oh, there you go. Again, you're listening to Jim Lang or James Lang. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Lang on Course or his website, jamesmlang.com. Jim, we appreciate you uh, coming on Class Dismissed. You bet. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>